It was the uh, most important day in history, though they did not know it, when Martin Luther, the monk, walked down the long avenue. It's approximately a half mile. Wendy and I walked it uh, a year ago when we went to visit our son and his fiancée in Germany, in Wittenberg, or Wittenberg as they say, that Martin Luther walked from one pulpit to the Wittenberg church where he was not assigned and nailed the 95 Theses. It's become the most important day in church history, in church history, not Christian history, but church history, because it, it was the, the igniter of the Reformation. Though the Reformation had slowly, slowly been coming about and starting some 200 years earlier with John Huss and John Wycliffe, it was Martin Luther with mallet in hand nailing those 95 theses to the wall, or 95 arguments or points of conversation that he wished to have with the Roman Catholic Church that was the spark that ignited and set aflame the Reformation from which it would go to Zwingli and Calvin and later John Knox it would go around the known world at that time. It would change governments. It would change marriages. It would change how men and women looked at their work and saw honor that no longer was it the priest that God would say, honor him because he is doing a work far and above everyone else. He would say, no, because of the priesthood of believers, that Joe Plowman working in the field has as important a call on his life in ministry and mission as the priest in the pulpit. But the most significant thing that Martin Luther stood upon was sola scriptura. Martin Luther did not set out to be a monk, by the way. He set out to be a lawyer. And he was in Eisenach from where he was studying the law. And one evening as he was returning to Isleben, his home, he got caught in a terrible thunderstorm. A thunderstorm that frightened him and he thought that he was going to be struck and he was going to die. Being a good Catholic, he called out to St. Anne to save him. And should he be saved, that he would give his life to God. And the expression of giving your life to God at that time would be to become a monk. So having already received his bachelor's and his master's in law, soon to practice law, he put that aside and he began to study And then he joined the Augustinian cloister as a monk. While he was there in the monastery, he enjoyed something called Anfaktungen. Anfaktungen every day. And he said, I have Anfaktungen in my soul always. It means struggle. He struggled with his goodness for he saw and understood the law of God to say that if any man or woman should ever seek to stand in the eternal presence of God in his heavens and new heavens and new earth, then he must be righteous. He must be pure of heart. He must be holy. And he said, I am not. Martin Luther would later write that he came 
as a monk, leading in the mass, leading the services, he came to have a love-hate relationship with God. He loved him and longed for intimacy and the embrace of a heavenly father. But he came to hate him because he said, I cannot meet his law. And how unfair for God to, to lay such a judgment and a law upon us miserable sinners who can never reach the heights of such purity. Reading through Galatians and Paul reflecting on the promise of Habakkuk that the just shall live not by the law, but the justified, those that are declared by God pure and able to enter into fellowship with Him and the promise of eternal life. They live not by the law, but they live by faith, and that faith in Jesus Christ. And that is gospel. It's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of the law. That is by grace from first to last. And receiving the forgiveness of our sins by grace, we grow in that grace to be the sons and daughters that we are. October the 31st is significant. You see, it's All Saints' Night or All Hallowed Eve. And it was the practice of the Catholic Church that every Catholic would go on a pilgrimage on October the 31st. They would go to a church, and it might not be their local Catholic church, because their local Catholic church might not have a relic, a bone or a splinter from the cross. It's said that there were so many churches claiming that they had splinters from the cross that it was enough to make an ark. But a church would lay out its relics and the saints seeking forgiveness because of the act of gazing or praising praying or touching those relics would have pardon that day for a season of all of their sins so every october the 31st the churches were filled with people throughout the day filing by these images and bending or offering a sacrifice or, or, or praying or proclaiming that now that I've seen that piece of bone or I touched that piece of wood, I'm forgiven again for a season. But there was something else going on. In 1517, there was an artist. There was an artist hard at work with a high commission to be paid. This artist was Michelangelo, and he was painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and they were over budget. He and the supplies and this ongoing work was costly. And so Albert of Mance, seeking a third bishopric, as a bishop, made a deal with Pope Leo. He says... If you give me another region from which I can draw upon, then I will give you the money. I'll find the money necessary to complete the Sistine Chapel. And Leo said, well, if you can do that, I'll give you a third bishopric. Albert had the man. He had Johann Tetzel as a monk who came up with the idea of indulgences. 
he came up, he was such a marketing genius that he went to the Catholic saints and he said, you have lost loved ones and you fear for their salvation, even as you fear for your own salvation. You know, in the Catholic church, they taught that you could lose your salvation rather quickly if you did not go along with all of their counsels and all of the rules and the laws of God. You have lost loved ones and you are in doubt. In fact, you fear they're either in hell or purgatory, that, that holding area that's in between heaven and hell that if you as a survivor do enough good works like going to a crusade or joining a monastery yourself or a nunnery, you can get them up out of purgatory into heaven. Some may be a little closer to hell, but for all, if you will give money. And he came up with an advertising slogan. He said, when the change in the coffer clinks, then when it clings or clinks, then the soul from purgatory will spring. And they would carry around these great chests to all the church. And they would advertise that the chest is here. Come let your change cling. And as it's clinging, you can hear these souls springing forth. Martin Luther, the monk, at the end of the street on October the 31st, had had enough. With his growing impressions from Galatians, that the just shall live by faith. And that this word, above all word, above all counsel, is true. I cannot remain silent anymore. And he marched to the end of the street, not knowing that he would spring a reformation into act. He, it was called the Reformation early because he had hoped to stay in the Catholic Church and for it to reform, for it to reform back to its original roots and its founding in Peter and Paul, the teachings of John. For at one time there was only one church Catholic, one church united. But over time it had become corrupt. It had been filled with the opinions and the thoughts and even the sinful designs of man, farther and farther away from God's Word. So that God's Word was a tool to be manipulated in order to manipulate men for the benefit of men. It was no longer absolute truth in which all men bent the knee as they would even bend their ear and their heart. Martin Luther thought that the church would heed and he would win them over from the Scriptures, even as he submitted to the Scriptures. But it was not so. He was excommunicated, and his disciples and his followers began to get the nickname of Lutherans, which he never wanted. He, never, he would be embarrassed, in fact, probably aghast that we would speak so much about him and his works because he would say, it's not about a humble monk. It is about the words of God, the Son of God, the grace of God, to the glory of God. There were five solas, five alones, and that's what sola means. The Christ alone, sola Christus. Sola fide for faith alone. Sola gratiae for grace alone. Sola scriptura, 
that we're looking at this morning. The Bible, Scripture alone. And then finally, sola gloria. God's glory alone, not man. And so when the church churches began to pull away and Protestant churches began to occupy once full but now empty Catholic cathedrals, when they began to huddle in, in homes and communities and began a new liturgy focused on the Word, and as I said earlier, worship and song, as these communities began to grow, the focus was always on what does God's Word say? For it's the chief authority, Scripture alone. And Luther would say about the Scriptures that the most simple layman with the Scriptures in hand has more authority than the Pope who does not have the Scriptures. And that was the rub. That was the rub against Leo and the Catholic Church. For they came and they would, they would, it would be portrayed in a work of art. And as Laban, his, the place that Luther was born and later the place that he would return and preach once again until his death. And the work of art shows on one side Luther with a Bible in his hand. And it shows on the other side Eck, another monk and lawyer for the church, with a bunch of scrolls in his hand. And Luther would say, I'm taking my stand on the Word of God as the sole authority, the supreme authority, the boss of my life. And Eck would say, oh, well, we have that but the interpretation of this, the counsels, the traditions, the opinions, the words that are inerrant, they believe, coming from the Pope, while they're even more authoritative, if not equal. And Luther said no. What are the implications to us? Well, the implications are is that the Apostle Paul told Timothy in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. We believe, because we believe in God's Word, as Paul taught, that God's Word is inspired. That means breathed. That God's Word comes, it's personal. It's a part of Him. He breathes His Word out, even as it's spoken. And because it comes from God, it's true. And because it is inspired and comes from God as truth, it's over that that comes from man and is breathed out from man. The implications are is that two rivers as a congregation, you may not have thought or my opinion, but you can always trust God's Word. 
It's one reason at Two Rivers that we encourage you to bring a scripture or we'll provide on the table scriptures for you, whether it's in a a Bible. I particularly like the the book form. Um, It can be a smart device. But we encourage you as, as a minister will preach or as a teacher will teach to follow along in your scriptures. Or when scriptures are given in the sermon notes that you would take an opportunity to look them up if they're referred to. For they're there as support to say that my words in a sermon are founded on truth. I pray I pray early on Sunday mornings as I pray over my notes and I pray with God's Word and I I pray for you, the listeners. I pray that anything that I say that is untrue, you will quickly forget. But God's Word will not return void. Or as I read this morning in my own private devotions, God's Word will not fall to the ground. And when it leaves His mouth, And He's still speaking from these living Scriptures. As He spoke these words into existence and as they were true for Timothy, they are still speaking to us today. That His words this morning, as you hear His words, that His word is inspired. And that it's youthful. That it won't fall to the ground in your life, but that it will take root in your heart. That you will say, if this is God's word, If it is inspired, then that means it is the authority in my life. It is boss in my life. And we don't like authority in the 21st century. We don't don't like a man or a woman over us. We don't like authority figures. And we're distrustful of authority figures. But Paul is telling Timothy, you can trust God's word. Paul was writing these words at the end of his life to Timothy at the start of his life. He says in verse 10, Timothy, you've followed my teaching, my conduct, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, and all that has happened to me at Antioch. Earlier, if you were to look in your scriptures, he says in The first chapter, verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. He's quite a bit older than Timothy. And he's writing, he's writing during his second imprisonment in Rome. We read that in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 9, where he says, My gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, But the Word of God is not bound. Later on, he will ask ask Timothy to bring his books with him whenever he comes to visit him. He says, I I long for you to come and to, to visit me. And when you come, bring my books. Those books would not simply be philosophers or other literature, it would be copies of the scripture that he would have. Maybe even copies of his own letters that he had comprised during his life. Paul is looking at the end of his life. 
Timothy is looking at the start of his ministry. So last words are very important. And Paul wants to tell him, the most important thing that I can tell you, Timothy, is to commend to you God's Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we read, And He humbled you, that is God, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel about what they've experienced in the wilderness and why they've experienced it. And he's explaining to them why it was that God fed you with manna every day. Why didn't He just allow you to to bank a week or a month's supply? Why was it every day? And why was it that if you didn't go out that day and get it, that it wouldn't be there the next day because, and you couldn't keep it more than one day? Why was it a daily grace, a daily provision? Verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8. And He humbled you, and He let you hunger, and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know, here it comes, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Really? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you cannot experience life, that you will cease to live, Unless you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Moses said. That's what Moses said was the primary reason. He says, just like you can't live if you don't get your day's bread. Now, you're not going to die that day. You're not going to die in three days. I'm told that, that we need water in three days to survive. But it's not unheard of for men to still do 40-day fast without food. You can live quite a while without bread, physical bread. But all the while, what's happening? You're wasting away. Pretty soon, without bread, your body morphs into this machine looking for protein that will start to eat your muscles. And before long, you'll become so weak, you won't be able to get out of bed. And if you, as seen by those that suffer with anorexia nervosa, do not get food, you will die. Do you believe the same thing holds true about this? Do you believe that this is God's words from Him, Very, very personal. And he comes to us as his sons and his daughters through Christ. And he says, eat this and live. If you eat this, you'll live. And the corollary is true. If you don't eat daily, like that daily provision, the food that I'm providing for you here, it'll take a little while, but you will weaken and you will die instead of live. Well, Pastor Phil, I've never known any man that didn't regularly, or woman that didn't regularly read their Bible that just died physically. No. Not necessarily, no. But spiritually, we do. God becomes more and more distant. Our our vows become more 
forgetful. Our love gets cold. He's not talking to us because we're not carving out the time. These are love letters. And we're not talking to Him because we're not receiving and praying back, talking to Him. We begin to die spiritually as God's people. As God's people, we begin to die. Paul would say, Timothy, listen. In verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life, if you want to live, if you want to live with God, and you want God in your life, you're going to be persecuted. If you're going to live in Christ Jesus, don't think that you're going to be able to avoid the life that I've modeled to you. I'm not extraordinary. Now that persecution is going to look different for the mom in the home or the person in the workplace or the classroom or the hospital. It's going to look different. But we are going to, because we live in a fallen world, and we're surrounded, as Paul would say in verse 13, with evil people, imposters, will go on from bad to worse. It's not going to get any better. Christians are not going to be treated any better. Deceiving and being deceived. Apart from regularly taking in God's inspired Word, Submitting to it and saying, not only are you the boss and the authority to direct my life, but I want that. Living life on my own is not going to work. I've tried that. I'm, I'm a crummy God to myself. I'm a crummy Lord to myself. But Lord, you are a shepherd to me. And more than that, you are a father to me. And you are a creator of me. And you do have purpose for me. And you've put your love upon me and now you call me your child. And you've promised to grow me in the image of God. But all through this, and this is where life lives. Apart from this, I'm surrounded by evil people. I'm surrounded from the bad going worse. I am surrounded by people that are deceiving. And I will be deceived. Begin subtly, very subtle. And then it becomes very significant apart from God's Word. So Timothy, Timothy, it's, a, it's an evil world. And you need to walk with God through this for a godly life, for the life that you're made to have. And in walking with Him, He provides you daily bread from His Word. Martin Luther, Martin Luther was, he helped the Christian saints, to employ a daily intake of God's Word because of these very reasons. That they would no longer be deceived by those alone who held the Bible, the Scriptures, in the Latin Vulgate, which the German peoples did not speak. Leo and the and the Vatican did not want the Bible in the hands of the people. In fact, prior to and during the Reformation, when you went to the Mass, it was seldom that even a homily was ever heard. 
So you would hear the liturgy in Latin. And part of the Eucharist would be hokai pokai, from which we get hocus pocus. It was just magic. But no God's Word. And Luther said, God has given us a great treasure. And it contains the mystery of the gospel of grace. And it contains words of salvation. Not only for my conversion, but for salvation of my regular day. I need saving every day from the issues and the problems. From the assaults and from the struggles in my own soul. And so, Martin Luther aided the church with the event of two things. He was called by Leo to a council. A council that they said, we want to hear from you again, yet again, about why these scriptures are so important to put into the hands and the hearts of Christians. Well, he received word that they were going to excommunicate him at that council and immediately put him in prison and then they would burn him at the stake. And so... They sent a group to go and get him. And as they were coming through Wartburg, the king sent his own troops to capture Luther and he locked him up in his castle in Wartburg. And uh, Wendy and I had the privilege. It was one of the things that I particularly wanted to see. And it's a beautiful, beautiful castle. And... It sits very, very high and overlooks the community. And there in the castle is a room, a library, that Luther spent his time. It's, it's a library that famously he had the inkwell that at one evening in his prayers he felt so assaulted by the devil it was as if the devil was physically present that he took an inkwell and threw it against the wall. And the stain is still there. But it was there with a lot with the king's library that he was able to translate from the original Hebrew and Greek, along with the Vulgate Latin, the Bible for the first time into the common language of German. He said he hated it. Not the work, but Luther was an extrovert. He and his wife, Katie, later would operate a brewery, as well as entertain many, many young seminarians that they would feed at their table. He loved, he was outgoing and gregarious, and he was also a man's man. And he said it was tough being bound up in that room. But he said, I felt it to be the most important call of my life, that men and women should have the Scriptures in their own language, and then the Gutenberg Press had come into being and in their own hands. And so now, books of the Bible, not a whole Bible yet, but books of the Bible went out. What a privilege! And people began to read. And as they began to read, they began to have questions. And then the seminarians began to go out, and they began to get preachers and and pastors who shepherded them in God's Word. What a privilege! But Luther, how how do you read this Bible to get all of the life that is promised? Here in verse 15, Paul says, 
You've known, Timothy, the Scriptures from your childhood. That's the sacred writings. In the first chapter, he said, you know, stir up those gifts that began to get transferred into your life through your mother and your grandmother who held on to the sacred Scriptures. They didn't just transform their knowledge, but they transferred the Scriptures. And later, he would tell him in chapter 2, he said, Timothy, here's your job. What you've heard from me, God's Word, in the presence of witnesses, entrust to faithful men, and we could say women, who will be able to share it with others, to teach others as well. In other words, you heard God's Word from me. Even as Paul wrote these letters, he had that sensation that these are words from God. Not my opinions. And he says, as you've taken it in, now entrust it to others. And then they will entrust it to others. And that was taking place, but still they asked. They said, Martin, what's a guide? How can we get the most of life from this? And he said three things. Number one, pray the Psalms. Luther, as a monk, the monks took very seriously out of Psalm 119, the encouragement to pray seven times a day. They took that seriously. And Martin Luther continued that after he left the monastery. And what he prayed was the Psalms. You'll notice here at Two Rivers, our elders, very often, if not always, before we pray, before they pray for our church and our world, they read from the Psalms. Psalms that they have worked in their own heart so that those prayers for the church are based on God's Word. It's not just man's opinion, oh, what am I going to pray for or bless this food? It's God's Word. So he said, look particularly with the Psalms, because the Psalms are prayers as well as praise. And then secondly, he said, meditate. He said, we are all tempted, we are all tempted to busyness, and to just read and then end. In other words, we're all tempted to just dutifully read. How's your quiet time? Well, you know, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, which is wonderful. I commend that, by the way. But it can be a rather lengthy reading. And sometimes we just have enough time to read it, and then we rush off. And Luther would say, no, no, no. Just like bread, don't just gulp it down hungrily and swallow it, but Take time, linger, chew on it, meditate on it. What is God saying here? What is God saying about Himself? What is God saying about or to you? Is there something here to praise God for? Is there something here to repent of? Thirdly, He said, struggle. He said, wrestle. And in describing this, he says, it's like that wrestling match between Jacob and God. We have God's Word, and then I read it. And there's, there's this struggle. Is this true of me? Or why do I not quite believe this? And he says, the struggle is between God's inspired Word of truth and my unbelief. The struggle is between God's way and my stubbornness for my way. 
I like to edit God's Word. And guess what? When I edit it, it minimizes persecution. (laughs) It minimizes change. It minimizes trial. It maximizes comfort. And that is wrong. Luther would say, pray as you begin. Maybe read a passage. For instance, you can uh, read a passage like in Psalm 118. Let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Lord, I thank You for that. I thank You that You're a God that I can always call upon. That in my distress, You know of my distress. And there is a promise that You will be with me. And there is a promised day of freedom. And then, hmm... His steadfast love. Do I? Steadfast love. What, is, what does that mean? That's a unique word. Steadfast love. You know that word appears a lot in the Scripture. Steadfast love. Steadfast, back in Exodus, when Moses said, God, reveal yourself to me. God says, I'm going to hide you in a cliff of a rock, and then I'm going to pass by. And he goes by, and he hears the words, I am a God, rich in compassion, steadfast love in His people, slow to anger. Steadfast love. And it's for me. And then wrestle with it. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Do I I call on the Lord frequently? Do I call on the Lord in my distress? Or do I just try to solve it on my own? Do I stubbornly refuse to pray? And wrestling, do I really believe when I look in the mirror, that God's love is steadfast for me. It's never changing. I feel pretty unlovable. Wrestling with that. Wrestling with it. Paul would say, Timothy, this Word of God is such that it's unchanged. As I read earlier, he said that he was bound, but God's Word is not bound. And it's going forth even to today. And Luther was frustrated because it was just bound up in the hand of councils and they were misusing it or not using it at all. But it's so unbound that we all have a copy of the Scriptures. And you're a part of a church that preaches from the Scriptures. And it's our foundation in the decisions that are made and the classes that are taught and the discipleship that is ongoing. It is sola Scripture. It's our foundation. Finally, I would say this. In Colossians 3.16, we have a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church. It says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. What you see is you see a church that the Word of Christ, Christ who inhabits His Word, and when His Word inhabits us, He's inhabiting us, that Christ and His Word is dwelling richly with us. That He is, when we share with one another in fellowship, He's there in community with us. It's a beautiful picture of a church gathered together in fellowship, but not just around a man, a talking head, or his opinion, but it's gathered around the Word. 
And that Christ is speaking. And He's speaking of that love. And He's speaking of life. And He's speaking of how to experience daily renewal and salvation and growth in Him. He's in our midst. Every time we open the Word, God is speaking to us. And He's speaking to us through the mouth of Christ. And He's with us. And I would just think and encourage us as two rivers that we would catch a vision of that such that the Word of God would come up often in our conversations. Really. And it would never be to condemn or to judge. But it's the only source to encourage people. It really is. It's the source of how we're able to stay in community also with one another. Are you regularly taking in God's Word? Are you chewing on it and taking it in? Now God wants to use it. It amazes me that many, many times in community, the very words that I read from God's Word that morning in the course of the day, I have an opportunity to share that Word for the encouragement and the support and the strengthening of another believer or person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You tell us that You still speak from Your inspired Word and that it is useful. In fact, it is life-giving. So find our hearts full of gratitude this morning And just as Paul commended Timothy to read and to take no other other than God's Word, that we would receive that commendation and encouragement and that it would be life to us, even as it is Christ's words to us. Lord, I pray that you would take this table, the bread and the cup, and that you would use it to strengthen us That as we come forward to this table, hungry for forgiveness, hungry for strengthening grace, that it would be found at this table. You tell us that you, Jesus Christ, that by the sprinkling of your blood, that that is a better word than the blood of Abel. So this bread and this cup speaks a word to us. It speaks of forgiveness, and it speaks of strength in our walk with you as your sons and your daughters, seeking to bear the image of Christ in our world. So strengthen us and forgive us afresh and anew from the taking of these elements as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.